Well, thank you that you know the kind of weeks we've had. You know the frustrations and the sadness. You know the, the joys and the excitements. You know the things that we carry with us this morning. Yeah. So we pray that your living and active word would would come to bear upon us. Not the theoretical us, but the, the real us. How we're really doing. Open our ears that we might hear your voice. And by your spirit, might we be those who obey. In Jesus' name. Amen. Are there days, if you're being really honest, when you doubt? When you maybe wonder whether you're chasing the wrong bus, this whole Jesus thing? Maybe the culture around you looms large, maybe Oxford looms large. And it all feels like such a confident and clever place. And, and they, whoever they are, seem to have life all sorted out. And everything is together for them. And they have more money, they have bigger houses, nicer clothes, whiter teeth. They are more assertive, more attractive, more self-assured. They, they have nicer holidays, maybe they have better gap years. They're just better at life here in Oxford. And it just makes us feel small. And we wonder if we're chasing the wrong bus. Uh, I look at them and I look at my church. Let's be honest, no offence. We're just a bunch of randoms. <laughs> all sorts, all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life with all kinds of backgrounds and mess and skeletons and stories and all sorts. Many of us sat here as grown adults in what used to be a primary school gym singing songs about a man who died and rose again 2,000 years ago. Are we chasing the wrong bus? Is this... Is this real? I don't know what it is that you doubt and you wobble. When you find yourself really questioning what you believe, those big fundamental things. I know for many, and for me at least, it's when, it's when we start to play those comparison games. We look around us, and they seem to be doing life so much better than we do. And we begin to judge truth by what seems to be strong or impre- impressive. And we feel we're in the wrong because we don't feel very strong or very impressive or like we've got life together. But I think at the heart of Ephesians, and maybe particularly for our verses this morning, is the fact that as Christians we are are simultaneously in two places. This is so vital for us to grasp. So if you remember one thing from this morning, maybe remember this. We are not just in Oxford. We are also in Christ. Have a look down at verse 1. We saw it already with the kids in. But this is a letter from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is, one whom God has sent. How? By the will of God. But look, it's to God's people in Ephesus. And we said already, Ephesus was an important, prosperous city. Not unlike a place like Oxford. It was in the Roman province of Asia. It was prosperous because it was a trading centre. It was on the coast, which meant you had this port for boats, and yet it was served well by roads coming inland as well. So it was commercially doing very well. It was a place of money. But it was also deeply religious. A place of faith or faith. In the centre was the famous 
temple, the Greek of the Greek goddess Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And she's the goddess of forests and hills and a fertility goddess and very important in Ephesus. So, do you remember when, when Paul takes the gospel to Ephesus in Acts 19, it's because his news about Jesus threatens Artemis and the sort of business that's grown around Artemis and her temple, that kind of thing, that the people riot and Paul gets chucked out. The financial thing, based around faith and money. But in this one, they are in Ephesus. Ephesus, the commercial trading centre. Ephesus, the, the place of religion. Just as we are in Oxford. And with just that perspective, that in Oxford perspective, we can feel quite small, can't we? Just as the temple of Artemis looms large over the city of Ephesus, so our culture, so Oxford, looms large over us. It's intimidating. And we're forgetful and we're taken up with just what's in front of us. What we can see is what shapes us and how we feel. But we are not just in Oxford, we are in Christ. And so Paul says to them, remember who you really are. Because Christ is bigger than Ephesus. Christ is bigger than Oxford. It's this big part of the drumbeat of the letter, this in Christ idea. Did you, did you notice as Jenny read it for us? Verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose, verse 4, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen. And to be in Christ means that all that he is and all that he has done is, is yours. Because you are joined to him by faith. You as a Christian are in Christ. And in a broken world, that idea is foundational to the letter. You see, when we walk out on God, in comes war. War, war with him. Vertically, we're under judgment, war with one another, war with actions that mean we, we lash out at each other. We are petty and we fight. War with words that means that we, we gossip and we slander and we bicker and we shout. We're unkind. And war in our heads that mean we, we tear people apart, we condemn them, we compare with them, we judge them. And Paul says, in a world at war, you are included in Christ, you are joined to him. Which means that his death is your death, his life is your life. The blessings he won are for you, the forgiveness that he received is for you. He won it for you. You are united again to the God who made you, and so, so a war in one sense ought to be a thing of the past. And it's more than that, it's, it's a collective corporate thing. We are joined together as people in churches, which means in Christ we are in on God's plan in a broken world to put it back together again. And the church is just a foretaste of that. I want to do very quick two cross-references before we kind of dive into this passage, and I recognise I'm still sort of waggling over the tea a bit. We will get there. But two cross-references, just to try and help you see how Ephesians works. 1 verse 10 is the first cross-reference. Which isn't really a cross-reference, because we're going to be there in a moment anyway. But 1 verse 10, zoom in there with me. We get a glimpse of the end of the story. 1 verse 10, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is the end. Is this world random? No. 
Now, Paul says there is a goal, and that is all things are going to be brought together under Christ. And one day, that will be seen by everyone. Second cross-reference, 3 verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Okay, so where's the world going? 1 verse 10, it's being reunited. Everything's going to be brought together under the headship of Christ. That is the end game. That is where it's all going. And what does the church do? 3 verse 10, it gives a watching cosmos a glimpse of what is to come. (coughs) The church is the foretaste of what is to come. Imperfect, yeah. But it's a foretaste nonetheless. It is, it's the grainy picture in the summer holiday brochure that gives you a glimpse of what is to come. Just a pale reflection. But it whets the appetite. It's a reflection nonetheless. Which means that local churches matter. Because through verse 10 we're a glimpse of what is to come. <coughs> that blows my mind. Because we know we're imperfect. And I'm not sure I would do it this way. But hey, what do I know? God has a plan. Let's think about that plan. I want to see if the plan is Trinitarian. So it involves God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we'll see then is that we have a Father who selects. Verse 3 to 6. The Father who selects. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. God the Father is in charge, Paul says. And that is so important for us to cling on to, because if if it all hangs on me, if it all hangs on you, it's not going to go well. We've got no room for confidence because I've mucked up multiple times by breakfast. But God does not, and God has not, and He will not. He is in charge. We can trust Him, even if we can't trust ourselves. It is Him who brings about His glorious purposes for His creation. It is He who does it. He is the one who completes and fulfills His task. We are the receivers. We are the passengers. We are the benefactors. It's it's not about me, or you, or us. It's Him. Which means in weeks to come, we'll see there is no room for boasting. There's no room for us being puffed up. Because it's all about Him. Look at what kind of a God he is, verse 3. We lose a bit of the punch here. I think for consistency it ought really to read, and I wonder if this is what the guys upstairs are looking at, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have a blessed God who blesses. Because of who God is, so he acts in a particular way. What God is like dictates what he does and how he treats his people. 
Which is a long way from how many of us think about God, isn't it? So often we think he's a God who's stingy, a bit disappointed with us really, or he begrudgingly will bless us, his feelings towards us are, are based upon how we've done, our track record for the day before, the week before, the month before. And yet he's open-handed. He's a blessed God. He blesses people like me and like you, people who are undeserving. And he blesses us abundantly. And so he, Paul says, he chooses, he selects before the creation of the world. Not because of anything in us, but simply because of who he is. And for some of us, the warning bells are kind of ringing. We don't like that very much. This idea of choosing, this idea of God selecting before the creation of the world, verse 4. And I think there is a mystery to it. There are questions that will flow from it for many of us. But just for now, take it as a sign that he is in charge and we are not in charge. He is big and we are not big. And that is a good thing. It's actually the way he always works. If you've been around the last six months or so, you will remember from back in Exodus his purpose for tiny Israel that he chose to be his treasured possession among all the others was not because of anything good about them, not because they were special or particularly lovable or had potential or, or were strategic in some way, which might be the way that we would do it, but just because he chose them. Because he loved them. I wonder actually if this chapter is almost Paul retelling the story of the Old Testament. Like then, we are described as sons of God, verse 4. But the difference now, as we'll see, is that the people of God are not just people from an ethnic Jewish line, but the Gentiles have been brought in and included as well. That's why you get these you and we stuff from Paul through this chapter. Gentiles brought in and included in Christ, verse 13. It's as if Paul is retelling the story of the Exodus, retelling the story of the Old Testament, but drawing in and pulling in Gentiles, stretching and extending and expanding God's promises, unifying what was once at war, but now together. Which means the local church ought to be multi-ethnic, multi-economic, multi-educational, multi-everything community, because God calls all sorts of people chosen holy and blameless and different. And why? Because it's his plan for his praise and glory. Verse 6. We'll come up to that in a bit. How do you get on with these kind of big concepts? We're at sort of 30,000 feet, aren't we? There's a big idea at this point. I suspect we might be split down the middle. There'll be some who will be fairly familiar with these ideas. And they can kind of be water off a duck's back. You sort of shrug your shoulders and yeah, and it's amazing, isn't it? But perhaps some of the awe has gone. If for others, there may be questions that we've got. We're sort of drowning in ideas and concepts and each word is a suitcase jam-packed full of more ideas and more concepts. And all these whatabouts as well, these questions that bubble up. Maybe for now, just latch on to this idea of humble confidence. Humble confidence. Humble because we have been brought into God the Father's plan for the world. We have. But confident because 
We've been brought into God the Father's plan for his world. We know what life is about. We know where it's going. We, we are in on the secrets. And it's his plan. It's unstoppable. It's, it's not about us. We're not just in Oxford. We are in Christ. There's a father who selects. Secondly, we're going to focus in on Jesus. Verse 7 to 12, the Son who secures. The focus of the, the passage shifts from the Father to the Son to the Spirit. So we're in the middle now, the Son who secures. We are willing to pay for the things that we care about. If you're someone who, who cares about fashion, then you will be prepared to save up and to splash out on an outfit. If you're someone who cares about food, you will be prepared to queue up and to book and to pay for the nicer restaurants, of which there are many in this area. We are willing to pay for the things that we love. And so do you see how important this plan is for the Father? Because he's willing to pay with his son. As the son willingly dies for his people. But the cross... Nothing is ever the same again. Everything changes at the cross. Everything is different. Maybe you're someone and you are haunted by the past. Well, look at verse 7. We have, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The passage says, Paul says, whatever you've done, whatever you've been caught up in, whatever the regret and the shame that you feel, Whatever the skeleton you have in your closet, whatever embarrassment, whatever the guilt that holds on to you, you have been redeemed, says Paul. God has bought you for himself and he has forgiven you. And you are new. And your forgiveness, your redemption is not based upon your track records. Not based upon your faithfulness or the size of your faith or how great you think you are. It's about his faithfulness, his track record, the size of him, the size of our God, and his plan and how great he is. And so the blood of Jesus is enough. Whatever you might claim on to, the blood of Jesus is enough, and you can trust him on this. Maybe it's not the past, maybe it's the future, and you're fearful about the future. The next week, the next month, the next year. Well, remember verse 10. We, we know where it's going. We know the end of the story. History isn't random. There is a sense in which you can look and see there's a, a circularity to it. There are patterns and prophecies. There are mistakes and meanderings. But Paul says it's all going somewhere and we know the end. And God is working it out so the future does look good, ultimately. There's a, there's a truth to remember. That's good for us with this coming term, with community days and all kinds of stuff going on. We've got lots of uncertainties and it's so easy to get caught up in our uncertainties. Our brains just kind of zoom in there and can't move on. We go round and round. But it's all going somewhere. God is faithful. He is dependable. He is good. We can trust him. We don't need to be fearful. Maybe it's not the past and it's not the future and it's just now. Now you are struggling. Now life is hard. Well, know that he is at work. Have a look at verse 11. 
This is one of those verses that I I love. But I struggle with We struggle with it, I take it. It's a staggering claim from Paul. Have a look. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who worked out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I was looking on Amazon Prime last week, and you are still able to binge watch all six series of Lost. I have to confess, we watched it first time around, 121 episodes. I worked that last week, that's nine days of my life I will never get back again. <laughs> Plus that again trying to work out what it was about. Do you know, there are still people actually trying to decipher what the end means. There were blog posts from this last year, people are still wrestling with it anyway. Um, the tagline of the show, if you haven't seen it, and I don't recommend it, the tagline was, everything happens for a reason. I don't think the writers of Lost have been reading Ephesians 1. And I suspect what they thought the reason was would differ vastly from what Paul says, but the Bible's clear promise is that, is that everything happens, so God is working out history. However messy and mucked up it looks, however hard that might be for us to accept, however much pain we've gone through, even in the midst of pandemics, God is working it out. He's working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his world. It's a massive claim, isn't it? There's a huge encouragement there, but the questions that do come. It's in the big things of our lives, the big decisions, the, the what town you live in, the what job you go for, the what university you go to, the big stuff, but I take it the little stuff as well, because it's everything. Not just who works out all the big things in conformity with the purpose of his world, it's everything. It's the little things. It's think of your neighbours. He, he's put you there for a reason. Think of your friends. He's given you them for a reason. Think of your your classmates, your coursemates. You're on that course for a reason. Your job. You're there for a reason. Church today. Maybe even you are sat where you are sat in conformity with the purpose of this world. You're here for a reason. And so if life is hard now and you don't know how it's all going to pan out, or it's all still a bit uncertain and where will I be in five years' time? Will I still be in Oxford? Will I escape this place by then? Or will I still be here or doing what I'm doing now? We know it's in his hand. We can trust him. Because everything is being worked out in conformity with the purpose of his world. Now again, that does raise questions. Maybe there are good questions for coffee afterwards outside or pretend coffee because we're not doing coffee at the moment. Things to get our heads and our hearts around and our objections and our pain even. I think I want to say just for now know that there at the cross you see the greatest evil ever committed. But you also see the greatest good ever imagined that flows from it. So maybe even in the dark stuff God can do extraordinary things. Why? Well, verse 12 again, for the praise of his glory. We'll get there. The Father who selects, the Son who secures, now thirdly, the Spirit who seals, verse 13 to 14. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. If to those whom God the Father has chosen, and those whom God the Son has redeemed and forgiven, then God the Holy Spirit will keep and will seal. There's no way out. He's got us. There's a theologian called James Torrance, who, who writes with different answers to the question. Maybe someone's asking, when did you become a Christian? If you're a Christian here this morning, when did you become a Christian? His answer is this, I like this. He says, firstly, I have been a child of God from all eternity. Secondly, I became a child of God when Christ the Son lived, died and rose for me long ago. Thirdly, I became a child of God when the Holy Spirit sealed in my faith and experience what had been planned for all eternity in the heart of the Father and what was completed once and for all in Jesus Christ. Do you see, all of God at work in his plan of salvation for his people, all three persons of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit seals us. I think there are various reasons in the passage that we see that. I'm just going to give you three of them now. We're going to skate over them quickly. There's so much that could be said. But for now, three things. One is the ownership question. You're out for a walk in the countryside and you see a sheep in front of you. That's beautiful, it's white. But where did that blue splodge come from on the sheep? Is that natural? No, it's not natural. It's someone who has, who has sprayed them with ink to, to say, you belong to me, sheep. And in fact, all you other sheep in this flock as well, you also are blue. You can't wash it off. You can't get rid of it. God says, mine. His Holy Spirit in us is ownership. But I think deeper than that as well, actually, there are more echoes of Paul looking back to the Old Testament again, using their ideas and their history and developing them and growing them and expanding them. So back in Ezekiel, for example, God's people were, were marked with, uh, for protection. They didn't receive judgment for sin because they were marked with a sign. Again, like the Exodus with the, the blood over the doors. They belonged to God. And so here, God's people are marked with a sign. They belong to him. And again, that must have been a surprise if you were there in the church in Ephesus and his letter was read out for you. A Christian with a Jewish background, perhaps, listening in as it's read from the front or in groups or however it's read, that promised Holy Spirit who you thought was for you and your people, that God had promised you and your people from your scriptures. And suddenly, you see, Paul is talking about the Gentiles here too. Verse 13, you also were included in Christ, he says. They have been included into the promises. God's new family. What's that all about? And included not as some kind of, you know, the embarrassing cousin at the party that everyone tries to avoid. These are people who are, are first class citizens with you. They have your spirit too. They're central to the family of God. As his Holy Spirit lives in them. Ownership and protection and, and a guarantee as well, verse 14. He also is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. I'm not sure this illustration works for one anymore because of the way money works now, but imagine, imagine, was, imagine you're 18 and you've been scrimping and saving as much as you can because you want to buy something, you want to buy a car, your first car perhaps. 
You've had sort of after-school jobs, and you've had summer jobs, and holiday jobs, and weekend jobs, and you've, you've scrimped and saved all this money together. And you're going to buy your first car. And you go to the dealership. And usually you don't pay for it all in one go. You give them a deposit, you give them an amount, and you say, I'm interested in this car, and I will come back, and I will collect it, and I will pay the rest in a bit. This car is for me. And so I think as the Holy Spirit acts as a deposit for God's people, it's almost like a bit of the future is coming into the present, but it's also God guaranteeing that he's going to come back and pick the rest up later. That, that, that one there, that's mine, he says. The verse 14, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. God comes to live within his people, saying, I bury you, and I will come back, and you are mine. It's that redemption word again. Remember verse 7, we've already been redeemed. But verse 14, we will finally be redeemed. With this inheritance, the transformed world, the new heavens, the new earth, united under Jesus, 1 verse 10, a place where there's no war, where we can enjoy peace. And the kind of place that churches ought to be a glimpse of now, a foretaste of what is to come. And again, notice, it's verse 14, it's for the praise of his glory. We've had that three times. You probably realise that. We had it in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. We had it in verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And then verse 14, to the praise of his glory. One for the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Spirit. Three times we remind it's not about us. It's not about us. When our life is all about us, it is exhausting. Exhausting and it's terrifying. But God's eternal plan is to glorify himself. That he saves the people for himself. Not glorifying in a kind of a bit fragile and a bit needy sort of way. Give me the glory, I can't cope without it sort of thing. But more so that others may enjoy him and know him and love him and treasure him and find life in him. He's saying he's the fountain of goodness. I just wonder if we really grasp more of what it meant that we were part of God's plan. That we had Father and Son and Spirit working in rescuing us and keeping us and the inheritance to come. Then maybe, maybe we might spend a bit less time thinking about us being in Oxford all the time. <laughs> maybe we wouldn't spend so much time comparing ourselves and feeling wobbly and... It would change the things that we chased after and worried about and the things that we were caught up with and the things that kept us awake at night. It would change the way we would just so often try and fit in like a chameleon because we forget we're not just in Oxford. We're in Christ. And that changes everything. The Father who selects. The Son who secures and the Spirit who sees. Let's pray.
Lord, as we began, you know us. And so we pray that you would help us this week as we chew over this passage as individuals, as we chew over this passage as a church. We pray that these big truths, these big realities, would increasingly shape us, shape our hearts. That increasingly we might know that we are secure in you. Give us that humble confidence to live for you. And when Oxford looms large and we feel wobbly, help us please to remember what it means to be in Christ. In his name we pray.